Matthew 20, 16, Jesus said, So the last will be first, and the first will be last. What did Jesus mean by that? Well, we're going to take a look at that today in our Bible study. If you've got your Bible, you can flip over to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. Last time, we looked at two interconnected stories in Matthew chapter 19. Today, we're going to look at two more passages which are also interconnected with those stories. Considering all of these passages together then helps us uh, to understand what Jesus meant when he said, the last will be first and the first will be last. So that they are fresh in our mind, I want to quickly review the stories from last time to help us get the stage set for the passages that we'll be also studying today. People were bringing their babies and little children to Jesus to have him bless them and pray for them. But his disciples, you might remember, saw this as an interruption and a distraction from more weighty and important things for Jesus to be spending his time on. So they rebuked the people, telling them to stop bringing their children to Jesus. But Jesus, he had a whole different point of view on that. He said to the disciples in Matthew 19, 14, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. So rather than pushing the little children out of the way, Jesus actually sets them up as an example to teach us what the kingdom of God is like. Jesus wants us to see that we can't earn our way into the kingdom of God any more than a little child earns her way into her family. She doesn't try to. Instead, she trusts in her dad and her mom's love for her. She trusts in their provision and protection. She depends on them for everything. As, properly loved, as a properly loved child doesn't fret and worry if her parents are going to keep her or feed her or give her a place to sleep or clothe her and so forth, she doesn't try to prove her worthiness to be in the family. She receives all of this with a simple faith and trust. She has to since she doesn't have the ability to do any of these things herself. Gaining entrance into the kingdom of God is more costly and difficult than any of us can imagine. We can't earn it, we can't buy it, we don't deserve it. It's completely out of reach for us. So how then are we ever able to enter the kingdom of God, ever able to receive salvation, to have eternal life, to go to heaven? We receive it like a little child from our Heavenly Father. A wealthy young ruler then came up to Jesus and he asked, What good thing must I do to get eternal life? Here was a person who looked like he had everything going for him. He had wealth, he had power, he had importance, he was young and healthy, he was devoted to his religious faith, and he would have been considered a good person by most people. But he knew he still lacked something in his life. He still felt separated from God, and he had no confidence that he would go to heaven when he died. Well, using the same metrics that this man has been living his life by, Jesus tells him to keep the commandments. And the young man responds, saying that he has done this his whole life. Jesus then put his finger on the pressure point for this guy. 
to cause him to rethink his whole concept of what and who is good and how committed he really was to this pursuit of eternal life. Jesus told him to sell all of his possessions and give them to the poor and then follow Jesus. And you might remember the, the man, when he heard that, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus had asked him to do something he was not willing to do. It was too much to expect. That was a bridge too far for him. The point Jesus was making to this man and to his disciples and to us is that none of us, none of us are willing and able to really do all that is required to get eternal life, to enter the kingdom of God, to be saved, to go to heaven. None of us. Jesus then said to his disciples, he said, it's harder for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And his disciples, they were astonished, it said, by what Jesus said, because he implied it was impossible. The disciples thought, well, if a good person like this, who obviously has the blessing of God on his life because of his wealth, if he can't get eternal life, then what's to become of the rest of us? How can anyone be saved, they asked. Jesus then gave the solution to this apparent unsolvable problem of how any human being can be saved, can enter the kingdom of God, can go to heaven, can get eternal life. He said, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Salvation is an impossible thing for any human being to obtain in their own effort. But God has done the impossible for us through His Son, Jesus Christ. What must we do then to get eternal life? We receive it like a little child from our Heavenly Father. We trust in His love and grace rather than our own abilities. And so the story continues now in verse 27 of Matthew 19. It says, Peter answered him, We've left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? So Peter, he's been watching this conversation taking place between Jesus and this wealthy young man. The young man asks Jesus what good thing he needs to do to get eternal life. Jesus tells him to sell all that he owns and give it away to the poor and then follow Jesus. Well, Peter, he's thinking that that's essentially what he and the other disciples have done. So he asks Jesus, we've left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? I want you to notice the apparent disconnect going on here. Peter skips right over Jesus talking about how it's impossible for any person to enter the kingdom of God through their own efforts and merits. It's as if Peter didn't even hear any of that talk by Jesus. Instead, Peter is still back at the conversation where Jesus is having the young guy talking to him about what must he do to get eternal life. Peter has the same mindset as this young man does. He's thinking about how to earn and deserve salvation in heaven. In fact, the way Peter phrases his question, it sounds like he's operating under the assumption that God is obligated to reward him and the other disciples for what they've done. 
God owes them some kind of significant accolade. Jesus, we've done exactly what you told this other guy to do. We've left everything to follow you. I can only assume then that we must have some kind of incredible reward coming our way. Yes? Well, rather than directly confronting Peter's misguided thinking, Jesus takes a more indirect approach. In verse 28, Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or fields for my sake, will receive a hundred times as much, and will inherit eternal life. So Jesus affirms for Peter and the other disciples, and for everyone who chooses to follow Jesus, that they will indeed receive much more than they ever gave up, and they will inherit eternal life. I first want us to notice this, that Jesus mentions eternal life, heaven, salvation, as the most valuable of things that we can receive. And that in itself is a lesson to be burned into our hearts and our minds, isn't it? That there is nothing more valuable for us than eternal life, salvation. Well, Jesus, he promises reward to those who follow him. But reward in the kingdom of God does not work the same way as it does in this world. Because in verse 30, Jesus says, But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. I have a feeling when Jesus said this, Peter and the other disciples got a very confused look on their face. When Jesus says that they're going to sit on thrones and judge the 12 tribes of Israel and receive a hundred times more than they have given up and receive eternal life, they're thinking, that's what I'm talking about. Tell us more about all of that stuff, Jesus. I mean, that is what I showed up for this party for. But then Jesus says, but many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. And that's when the big question marks start appearing in the air above their heads. You know, what does that mean? Well, I think once they regain their footing a little, the first question that comes into their mind is probably, well, who's first and who's last then? But see, concerning ourselves with those kinds of questions shows that we are still thinking like this world, rather than thinking like the kingdom of God. We're thinking about how to get ahead of the other guy and how to earn our way into the kingdom of God. When Jesus ends with these words, many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first, he's telling us that the kingdom of God does not work like this world does. There's great reward for following Jesus, but that reward is not given and received the way that reward is given and received in this world. They're not the same. It doesn't work the same. So Jesus tells a parable 
to help explain the meaning of this phrase that he says, those who are first will be last and those who are last will be first. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 20. This is all part of the same conversation. He just slides right from verse 30, Matthew 19, into the first verse of chapter 20. It says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About nine in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I'll pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about noon and about three in the afternoon and did the same thing. About five in the afternoon, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. So the situation being portrayed in this parable, this story, is that of a landowner who hires day laborers to work in his vineyard. And he offers to pay the first workers that he hires one denarius each for the day's work, which was, by the way, the standard wage for that kind of work at the time. The scene repeats itself with the landowner hiring more workers a little later in the morning at 9, and then again he hires more workers at noon, and again at 3 in the afternoon, and again at 5 in the afternoon. We learn a little later in the story, down in verse 12, that quitting time will be at 6, just an hour after he hired that last group of workers at 5. The landowner told these other workers that he would pay them whatever is right. And they would have assumed that meant that they would be paid the corresponding fractional part of a full day's pay. Verse 8. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last one hired and going to the first. That evening, when it was time to pay the workers, the landowner, he tells his foreman to pay the workers in reverse order of when they had been hired. He's to pay the last ones hired first, and so on down the line, and then finally paying the first ones hired last. Now, I want to remind you at this point that Jesus is telling this parable to explain the meaning of The last will be first, and the first will be last. We need to keep that in mind. Verse 9 says, The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came, and each received a denarius. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. So beginning with those who had been hired last at five in the afternoon, and they had only worked an hour, 
the landowner paid each one of them one denarius, which was the amount, you'll remember, that he had originally agreed to pay the first workers who had been hired early in the morning. When their turn came to get paid, the workers who had been hired first expected to get paid proportionally more than the workers who had been hired last. But they received one denarius, the same amount the landowner had paid the other workers. So these first workers hired, they started complaining. They didn't feel they were being treated fairly, being paid the same as the workers who had only worked an hour. The first workers instead, they had borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. Looking at the situation from the perspective of the first workers hired, we can sympathize with them. We can see how they would feel short change. They're being paid significantly less per hour than the other workers for doing the same kind of work. The landowner, he sees things differently. In verse 13, it says, But he, the landowner, answered one of them, I'm not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the landowner challenges the complaining of the first workers hired. He reminds them that they had agreed to work for one denarius, and he has paid them exactly what he promised them that he would. Rather than the landowner treating them or any of the workers unfairly, he's chosen to show incredible generosity. He asks the workers who are unhappy with him, don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? Verse 16, this is the punchline. So the last will be first and the first will be last. In the parable, the last are the workers hired last and they were paid the same as those who were hired first. And the first are the workers hired first, and they were paid the same as those who were hired last. Let's talk about the parable and the saying now a little bit. I think it should be said first that this parable is not intending to teach principles for running a successful business and how to manage a workforce. This parable is teaching us about the kingdom of God and how it works. From a business point of view, it could be argued that this landowner is not very wise. He is overpaying some workers, and he is creating tension between his workers and himself through his unequitable wage practices. So don't go away thinking, oh, this is how I should run my business. You, you'll probably be out of business uh, shortly if you do that. There are a number of meanings and lessons that have been drawn from this parable and the saying 
But I want to restrict us to a couple of the most straightforward ones. First, looking at this parable from the vantage point of God's relationship with the human race and history, there's a lesson that we can learn here from the Jews of Jesus' day, and this parable is telling their story and is applied to them. The Jews are the workers who were hired first, and they bore the burden of the work in the heat of the day. They were God's chosen people, which was a tremendous blessing. They were the ones God chose to have a unique relationship with and to whom God gave the law through Moses. They would be the people through whom the Messiah would come. But they were also people who suffered much under the tyranny of other nations. They hoped and they prayed and they waited and they watched for the day when the Messiah would finally come to bring them deliverance, salvation. Well, that day arrived with the coming of Jesus Christ. And with His coming, a new covenant was established inviting all people, both Jews and Gentiles, to receive salvation and eternal life. The Gentiles, the non-Jews, are the workers who were hired at the end of the day. And God has generously, graciously offered to all people, both Jews and Gentiles, the same salvation, the same eternal life. But rather than rejoicing in God's generous grace, the workers who were hired first complained and were envious that what they had worked so hard for, others were being given so freely. But they had forgotten that their own relationship with God was one of grace too from the very beginning. He's the one who sought them out and established a special relationship with them. He gave them blessing after blessing, rescuing them from slavery and establishing them as a people, giving them their own land, bringing the Messiah through them and so on. But over time, they came to think that they had earned their place, that God owed them. They also had very selective memory about their repeated unfaithfulness to the Lord. The Old Testament is one long, sad story of Israel's unfaithfulness and ingratitude toward God as He remained unfailingly faithful to them. So in truth, God did not owe them anything. He was not obligated to them in any way other than him making himself obligated through his own promises and his love. Now, looking at this parable on a personal level, it carries a challenging message for us. We are all the first workers hired and the last workers hired, depending on the situation. See, and we like the message of the parable when we are the worker who's hired last, don't we? That's cool. Didn't really have to put in much work, and I got full pay. The other guy deserved. But we're not so excited about the message of the parable when we're the worker who was hired first. And when we're honest, I mean, we read the parable and we think, oh, man, 
rough being those first workers. The truth that we want to take hold of from this parable is not about which worker we are and when we were hired. That's not what's important here. The truth we want to take hold of is to see that anything and everything that we receive from the Lord is an act of His generous grace. We're all saved by God's grace. We're all absolutely dependent upon His generosity extended to us. Some of us may receive more grace than another. Some of us may spend more time in the trenches serving the Master than others. But we are all receivers of His grace. We are all indebted to Him. The Lord doesn't owe us anything. He doesn't owe any of us anything. The only obligations that He has to us, to any of us, are the ones that He has put Himself under through His love and by the promises that He's made to us. We're all equally precious to our Heavenly Father and equally rewarded with adoption into His family as His sons and daughters and receivers of eternal life in heaven. There are no favorites, nor are there any neglected. He loves every one of us the same. Taking hold of these truths produces two very important attitudes in us. Humility and gratitude. These are attitudes of a Jesus follower. Humility and gratitude. We're grateful for having received the mercy and the kindness of God and all the wonderful things that come with our salvation that has been given to us. We're humble, knowing that we deserve none of it, He has generously poured out His blessing on us who have not earned any of it. This gratitude and humility should always be present in us as receivers of God's grace. Now one final thought. The landowner in the parable, he asked the ungrateful workers a very confronting question. He asks them, are you envious because I am generous? The Lord challenges us with the same question. Are you envious because I am generous? When we're envious of others, we've forgotten how blessed we are as a receiver of God's generous grace. The last will be first, and the first will be last. So if I just, uh, we just collect this all together here real quickly. Little children, they were considered the last in society's pecking order. They're lifted up, though, by Jesus as an example of the kind of faith and trust that we're to have in our Heavenly Father. One who was thought to be first in the eyes of this world went away sad when he realized he could not meet the requirements for getting eternal life. When Peter asks about reward, 
he was told that there is indeed great reward for following Jesus, but that reward is not given and received in the same way as it is in this world. Finally, all, all, all are precious and loved by our Heavenly Father and the receivers of His generous grace. And this produces in us gratitude and humility. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, we thank You for Your good word. We thank You for Your great love for us, for Your generous grace that is given to every one of us Lord, may we rejoice in your generosity, both to ourselves and to others. We pray that we truly are grateful and humble as we think about your generous grace, extended both to ourselves and to others. Make this so in us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.